Kia ora, and welcome to Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, the podcast. During the lockdown, academics from the university's law faculty have been getting together online to discuss the legal implications of the New Zealand government's response to COVID-19. This is the third part of the series and was recorded on Thursday the 30th of April. Right, tēnā katoa everyone. Nessa, Eddie, Dean and I are back to talk to you. I'm Jeff McClay at the Law Faculty at Victoria University of Wellington. This is the third of our um, series, continuing series on law in the lockdown, the legal lowdown on the lockdown as we've called it. What we were going to do today, we thought we'd we thought we'd be doing and talking a lot about what's been going on in Parliament. We thought when we were recording this last week that perhaps there would be um, some very interesting provisions to talk about being debated in the House, but that really hasn't happened. And so we're not going to do that. We're not going to talk about what's not happened. We're going to talk about some of the interesting stuff that has happened over the last week or so and as we've moved into level three. And that just leads on to Dean's going to start off just very quickly. Dean, We've moved to level three. What's the same? What's different about the legal regime under which we're all living? Well, uh, uh, the first thing to say, and, and, and this is something we, we identified last week, was that the work still being done by the Director General issuing uh, orders uh, under Section 70, and, and there's been a little bit of commentary uh, from colleagues and elsewhere this week about the, the legal foundation for that, and that's still an ongoing debate point. Um, and we might talk about later on some of the challenges uh, and where they're at to the validity of those notices. So we've still got a, a Section 70 notice. It's not regulations or primary legislation, although uh, a, a change of mode is foreshadowed for, for Level 2 uh, when and if we get there. But there is a change in form, and, and, and that is we've got, a, we've got a slicker set of rules in the sense that they're a bit sexier, uh, they're a little bit more formal. They, they're, they're available on the usual legislation website. Um, you know, and, and, and they've got the fingerprints of Parliamentary Council's office and a, and a broader team of government lawyers giving those uh, rules the standard form we expect. And, and, and what's clear is the rules are a lot more complex because they're dealing with a lot less uh, nuance than our blunt stay-at-home, except for when you're going for your, your, your daily walk or your supermarket. It's had to deal with the circumstance where businesses can operate and and what are um, the safety measures that they need to be put in pl- put in place and I think we've just got to pause and say, gosh, it's been a tremendous job I think from the from from the folk drafting these rules to to get together a, a set of rules which are a lot sharper and also doing a lot more work and big snaps for getting that in in a place we'd expect at the legislation website in a way that's accessible and really some advances of, of, of clearness and clarity and so forth. I, I guess the concerns that we might have, uh, there's you know, little odd things about the odd little definition that we might, the train spotters, we may we may debate a little bit, but I think the, the ongoing concern will be any gap between these you know, quite sophisticated hard rules and the soft guidance, the nudges that are coming out of, you know, whether it's at the press conference, whether it's on the COVID website, and and I know that others might might want to come in and, and address some of those points. Yeah, because that's been the the trick so far has been this very very loose drafting, which quite rightly, as time goes on, people get less and less happy with, because as time goes on, people are really interested in what exactly it is they can and cannot do how close they can stand to people at their cafes or getting their burgers 
is just one example. But as time goes on, people want to know the rules that they can live by. And I think, Edie, you have a great example of where some of the complexity of this probably is shown in the way the rules are being represented and perhaps what those rules actually are. Do you want to explain? Yeah, so I, I guess the first point I want, to, I want to raise is to sort of echo Dean. And, and this is something that I think many people might not know is that in New Zealand we have a slightly different way of drafting legislation than some other countries. We have a specialist drafting office, the Parliamentary Council Office, who are specialised legislative drafters who do most of this work. And by and large, they do an absolutely outstanding job. And they've done this under enormous time pressure. So huge kudos on that. Um, but here is where I complain about a disconnect between some of the drafting and, and some of the messaging that we've got from government uh, that's being presented as the rules. So uh, Jeff will have put up um, on the screen a, a Twitter ad that's come out from the official government feed. And I've also seen this as uh, an ad before YouTube videos. And you'll see that it says at level three, the change to the bubble arrangement is that you can extend your bubble by one household, one household only, to connect with close family or whanau, bring in caregivers or support isolated people. Um, not a time for visiting friends and family. Don't extend your bubble if you don't need to. Keep it small and ex exclusive. That second paragraph I have no problem with. It's, it's sensible advice, public health advice, in the situation we find ourselves in. But that first sentence, you can extend your bubble by one household, does not actually reflect what the law that was drafted in a much more formal form, as Dean said, says. Um, the law, in fact, says that you can join two or more households. Uh, it doesn't restrict it to two. So we have messaging that makes it sound like you can only join two, but the rules as drafted um, don't restrict it to that. And at one level, you can understand why they don't want people joining six households so they can have a family reunion in the middle of a pandemic. So they want to discourage that sort of thing. Um, but here, I think there's a, a problem where you have the law as it's written, allowing for more than government is telling us. They are saying, you will be in trouble if you do thing X, and thing X is not actually prevented by the law, and you can't actually get in trouble for doing it. And at some level, until this, this goes to court, if they try to prosecute someone for something that's not um, prohibited in law, then the courts would call them up on that. But there's also another question, which I think Ness has been thinking about, of what happens to the, the softer enforcement mechanisms if the police try warning you for these sorts of things that are not, in fact, uh, prohibited by law. Yeah, thanks, Eddie. I can uh, chime in there. And, you know, this has been a theme of last week and the week before as well, where we talked about the level of subjectivity, um, which causes some problems for police discretion. Um, and police obviously have been very public around um, the way that they're policing this. So the operational guidelines have gone on the website, which is to be commended. So they've talked about their graduated response, engaging and educating people first before moving on to informal and formal um, mechanisms, um, starting with warnings and then moving up to prosecution. 
Um, so we've had some questions in um, which are picking up on that point, as you say, Eddie, um, both the subjectivity of it and what it actually is the status of these warnings, which can cause concern when you've got those inconsistencies with official advice. Um, so we're fairly familiar, obviously, with the consequences of a prosecution. And so the, the state prosecutes the matter in court. Um, you've got either a, a guilty plea where you accept the elements, your responsibility for the elements of the offence, or um, the, the Crown proves that against you. But the area of warnings is a lot more murky. Um, so we know that obviously a conviction will appear in a formal criminal records check. Um, it can have consequences in terms of travel, employment, etc. And obviously that's subject to the Clean Slate Act, which allows you to hide certain convictions um, over certain time periods. Um, but the issue of when and where warnings can appear and what the status of them is a lot more murky. Um, so this is something that the Independent Police Commission, uh, Complaints Authority, sorry, and the Privacy Commissioner uh, engaged in a joint review of in 2016. And I think they were quite critical of some areas of practice, um, notably around the disclosure of non-conviction information later. So if you um, are warned formally or informally, or indeed if you have any interaction with the police, um, that goes on the record. Um, and if you go for what's known as a, a police vet, so um, you want to work in a certain profession, and you want to volunteer um, with children or vulnerable people, uh, you will consent to a police vetting process. Um, and I think the public is not really um, au fait with the amount of detail that can be released there. Um, and so that includes any interaction you have had with the New Zealand police considered relevant to the role of being vetted, um, including any investigations that didn't result in prosecution. So I think that answers that question around warnings are not just an on the spot matter, there are something that can linger with you. Now, I mean, look, we'd hope that common sense would prevail. And if you do get a warning for uh, going for a surf under level four, or perhaps some contravention of the bubble arrangements under level three, that that wouldn't be detrimental to your future um, prospects. But I think it, it does go to some of the flippancy of this advice um, around, you know, we will just educate, we will engage with you. Um, and I, I think people have expressed concerns around what if I'm warned for something that I believe to be wrong. Um, so what we would say there really is that um, obviously it's encouraging people to know what the law is in so far as possible. Um, there are obviously methods through the Police Complaints Authority that you can query um, things that had happened. But I think overall it is an area of concern um, as we move through level three and level two um, around some of the clarity of this advice. Because even if it doesn't result in prosecution, which at least has a testing mechanism, those warnings um, do form part of your record. So do you think, Nessa, that the police are enforcing the Twitter ad, or would enforce the Twitter ad, which I accept Eddie's interpretation is not probably quite what the law says, or do you think they'll enforce the law? And is there just a distinction here between what Eddie tried to call good public health advice, at least the second line, um, and actually what they're going to enforce? And should we be worried about that? Because if they're only going to enforce the actual law, what's the harm being done here? Um, well, it was interesting. I don't have the document right in front of me now, but I know the operational police guidelines that were released do have some advice around um, the bubble. So it'd be interesting to compare whether that compares um, to the Twitter ad. 
Um, but I suspect that hopefully they wouldn't be bringing people to court um, or formally warning them that that would be more of an advice thing unless it was a very serious breach, some sort of family family gathering of 50 people. Um, but I think it, it is an area of concern um, and I think the public should be rightly concerned if there is inconsistent official advice being given. Because the problem I have with this drafting provision is just trying to think how I would have drafted it so it actually looked like the Twitter ad because it's extremely difficult because what we really want here is to people to take a very restrained approach to how they extend out what they're doing. But equally, we want to give quite legitimate examples, legitimate opportunities for people. Like I know Dean's talked about wanting to merge his three families and his whanau, his, his house, his sister's house and his father who's um, living by himself. And that's probably, we can all see that's exactly within the spirit of what's supposed to be going on and within the law here. But equally, if you see that in the Twitter ad, you can have three, four, five or six houses joining quite legitimately, as the law says, despite so long as it's for caring and supporting people and it's within this overall principle, then people would just join four, five or six and be inclined to say, we'll just have a party. We're all, in, we're all supporting each other. Um, we've all had a hard time during lockdown. We're all far now in some definition that we take of what that word means. I think this is one of those hand-waving uh, things that, that, back to the very first notice, the bit that has continued to be hand-waved the entire time is that physical distancing uh, is not required if you're next to someone for less than 15 minutes. And that is still in there. That still says physical distancing means staying two metres apart if you can or if you can't, staying not staying next to someone for more than 15 minutes. So you could stand next to someone for 14 and a half minutes and that's not a breach of the social distancing rules. Um, no one ever mentions that. It's just hand-waved away. And I wonder, Jeff, if, as you say, that this is creating something that is a regulatory regime that can encompass sensible exceptions uh, and won't result in over-prosecution, but that if that was widely discussed, would defeat the purpose of responsible um, gathering. And there's something that sort of, as a lawyer, the disconnect between law and messaging rub rubs me the wrong way, and there's some rule of law questions going on here. Um, but as a practical matter, you kind of understand why they're doing it this way. They don't want to write laws that result in the police giving warnings or prosecuting people who aren't doing anything dangerous, but they don't want to advertise in a way that lets people take advantage, I guess. If I can add on that, I think one of the interesting things about the Level 3 rules on this point is um, the Attorney General released his report to Cabinet, which set out in quite some detail their thinking around the legal regime uh, how it's going to be implemented, the authorizations needed, and so forth. And that's that's been proactively disclosed on the Crown Law Office website, uh, and anybody can go and get it. And and it's clear the Attorney General and the team of government lawyers are grappling with this very point in that they're recognizing that there are layers, as we've talked about it before, of the regimes um, which start with the high overarching stuff. We've got hard rules. We've got we've got um, coercive discretion. And then they talk about voluntary action as being a part of that. And it's clear that doing the right thing is so critical to our response. But the rule of law thing is very is sitting in the mind of the attorney and he's advising colleagues about the importance of this. 
that that report identifies some of those instances where the things can only be achieved by voluntary action, whether it's even working from home, if you can, is not mandated by rule, it's a voluntary action. You know, high risk people staying at home, voluntary action. And what's really interesting, and, and, and I second the Attorney General on this, is the Attorney General said specifically, and perhaps I can read it out to you, in our communications, it is important that we are clear when actions are mandated and when we are asking people to act consistently with community expectation. That supports social license and legitimacy and reduces the risk of successful legal challenge. So, yeah, I mean, that really reinforces the point that Eddie and others have been making about we've got to, the messaging from government has got to be clear about when it's a, you're backed up by a hard legal rule and when it's just the right thing to do. We can expect both but there's got to be greater clarity about when we move between those layers. Yeah, no, and just to emphasise, I thought that document was just extraordinary. And anybody who has doubts about the degree to which New Zealand government is concerned about the law needs to take, take, take a little bit of a look at that document because you can disagree with it. And, it's all, and there's beginning to be increasing disagreement publicly expressed in the legal community about some of the legalities here. Um, that's probably a big feature of the last week. Some people, some very, very smart people are beginning to say, you could let things go for a little while, but it's time for parliament to act, act properly. But just, it's really important because very, to read documents like that, because we very seldom get a look under the legal hood of the way in which New Zealand governs. And I think some of the people on this panel, I know in some cases I, some sectors I have been, have been privileged to see actually how careful the government is to try and act legally. And I think that document is fantastic because it shows that actually the rule of law is very important, but also, and Eddie can disagree or agree with me, it's not just one thing. There are shades and there are understandings and there are hard rules you need to be clear about, but also there are some softer things that the executive, the government can urge people to do, even though they're not legally required to do. And I just thought it was a fantastic example of very smart people who wrote that cabinet paper who are trying to grapple with it and almost in real time. You could see today we're worried about this issue or yesterday we were thinking about this problem. And it's a real incredible snapshot into how things are being done. I think that's one of the really interesting things we're being taught by this process. If we keep our eyes open is actually how New Zealand governs itself in not just in extraordinary times, but also perhaps just Ordinarily, this is the kind of thing that's going on all of the time. But Nessa, do you want to say a bit more about the courts, in particular, maybe a little bit about the, the protocols and the way the courts are dealing with some of the difficulties of COVID-19, which have developed also since we talked last? Yeah, so we'd, uh, I was actually hoping the court protocol uh, would have been out before last week. I think it was just released at 6 p.m. when we had just finished recording. Um, but uh, obviously we've seen uh, quite a bit more court activity as we move into level three. Um, so under level four, as we remember, it was really only very critical and time sensitive um, matters that were being dealt with, um, particularly those affecting the liberty of, of people. Um, so we've moved to level three um, and the court's website has the various protocols for the various jurisdictions on there. Um, and again, they're to be commended for the, the really detailed and clear guidance that's on there. Um, so there are many, many human rights and due process and procedural issues um, that I sh I'm sure that we can um, talk about as we go uh, over the next few weeks. But I just wanted to highlight, I think, some of the big 
human rights issues that um, we'll be looking out for in relation to the criminal courts. Um, so the High Court, we've been told that there's no criminal jury trials until the 3rd of August. Um, the District Court will have jury trials from the 31st of July. Um, so the courts are back in business in a sense, albeit with physical distancing um, and other public health measures, meaning that the amount of business they can transact will be much less. Um, so the district court is one of the largest jur jurisdictions, um, I think in Australasia, it's a very, very big court. Um, so again, a huge amount of business that has been delayed. So I'd say the three, just very quickly, big issues for me would be uh, transparency. Um, so obviously you have the right to a fair and public hearing. Um, so I know that there's been a lot of protocols about how media can attend, albeit remotely. Um, there are provisions for support people, for victims, and for limited attendance by the members of the public. Um, so a difficult balancing act there between public health and transparency. Delay is going to be huge, a huge human rights issue. So under the Bill of Rights Act, um, you've got the right to be brought before a court without delay when you're arrested or detained, and you have the right to be tried without undue delay. And um, so I've already flagged the issue that we're not going to see jury trials for a while. Um, I think we're also going to see significant delays in relation to the provision of expert reports. Um, so uh, psychological reports, psychiatric reports, um, other cultural assessments that do need to be done essentially in person. Um, and those are a fundamental part of, of our justice system. Um, and participation, I think we flagged this before, um, the right to effectively and meaningfully participate in your own proceeding. So there's considerable literature on um, the deficiencies of audiovisual links um, to participation in trials. So particularly for vulnerable defendants and particularly for young people. Um, so it will be interesting to see whether we see any appeals or challenges on the basis that people weren't properly able to participate or communicate with counsel. Um, so those are some of the issues that we'll be looking at um, in the next couple of weeks. So I know Dean has a, um, a point about, I think, one of the cases that has been going through the courts at the just, moment. Just before we get to Dean, just to clarify, can the courts essentially knock down what would otherwise be jury trials down into judge alone trials? Yeah, so we do obviously after the Criminal Procedure Act um, have a number of ways um, that a judge alone trial can be um, uh, put in place. So those are usually to do with the complexity of um, matters or fraud, long and complex fraud trials and where there's been intimidation of witnesses and such. And so there will be a certain amount um, that may opt for a judge alone. Um, but I think we're still going to see a backlog um, and, and issues of delay. And that would mostly be defendant, defendants who have a veto over the judge alone trial. Yeah, so obviously um, the Criminal Procedure Act has constrained the right to a jury um, quite a bit from what it was previously. Um, but very serious, uh, the very serious category three and four trials, um, which there is already a considerable waiting time for a jury trial, are going to be further put back. And I think the point I was making as well around expert reports, there's going to be quite a backlog of those and many of which are fundamental to trials um, and, and to sentencings. Yeah, so just to clarify for people that aren't quite clear on what the categories mean, category three and four, category three and four are the most serious crimes in New Zealand. It would include things like sexual violations, murders, manslaughters, things that we would expect, most New Zealanders would expect are subject to jury trials and can only really be done by jury trial. So Dean, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, no, no, just just on that court line, uh, we're back in court. 
on Friday afternoon um, in the Court of Appeal with the, the appeal from the failed habeas corpus application. The, the testing of uh, detention or alleged detention um, and, and quite frankly, I think it's some no hoper um, uh, claims, quite bizarre allegations about conspiracies and so forth. But collaterally in that, we, we, we talked about this last time, there's the issue of whether the, um, the, the Section 70 notice issued by the Director General is, 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 is lawful or not. Again, as Jeff said, that's been debated by colleagues quite publicly uh, this week. That'll be up for debate again in the Court of Appeal, I suspect. Um, that w there will be a lot closer examination of those those points in the Court of Appeal. But I think the case is still bound to fail on the detention point. So uh, we'll be watching and, 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 and reporting back next week. There's two other things in play um, on that legality point. I know the police commissioner was before the epidemic uh, committee again on, on Thursday, got pressed very hard by opposition MPs on the legality and legal advice point, but, but responded, I think, very firmly. Um, we also know that um, or expect that the, the the legality point and some of the rule of law points are of concern to the, the Regulations Review Committee. Again, we haven't seen anything publicly on that, but no doubt there's things going on behind in the background where these con concerns are being ventilated. So I think more more to see uh, on, on that point um, in due course. Yeah, and just on the legality point, just to close that loop, because yesterday's extraordinary press conference brought us um, another example of legality concerns and people are still trying to unpick what was actually said by the Deputy Prime Minister and what was said in response by the Prime Minister. And we won't be certain until we actually see the real Cabinet papers. But just to recap, yesterday, somewhat surprisingly, the Deputy Prime Minister said that one of the options that had been put to Cabinet by the, Deputy, by the Director General of Health was to exclude not only foreigners trying to come back to New Zealand, but also New Zealand citizens. And I think that caused... Um, both political heckles to be raised, but also legal heckles, because I'm pretty sure that just about nobody thinks that such a restriction would be legal. Um, it's a fundamental matter of our Bill of Rights, fundamental human right to be able to return to your country. As, as Robert Frost said, your home is where you have, when you have to go there, they have to take you in. Everybody agrees it's illegal. And there was an interesting dynamic going on there in the press conference, particularly with the Prime Minister, as to whether this showed that something was wrong with the system. And for me, someone who's been a little bit involved in the cabinet paper system and why I'm a big fan of cabinet making decisions, is not so much the cabinet as a political body, although obviously these are highly political issues, but that as part of that process, we have built into it other people who see cabinet papers before they are made or decided upon. The cabinet committee structure requires certain people to be consulted before papers are put up. And for me, this story yesterday, the Deputy Prime Minister was talking that was not so much, and to be fair, the politicians obviously saw the same legal problem, but I suspect it was really an example of another, of another way in which the legal system in New Zealand works, that we don't, on the whole, let individuals make important decisions by themselves because they can, and I'm not saying the Director General did make a mistake because we're not sure what he actually advised or whether he was just giving some information or whether he was saying, well, of course, if you really wanted to do this, you do this, but we can't do that because of other concerns. The real point was that actually the system worked. It wasn't that politicians stopped the system work. The politicians were part of a system which is designed to pick up those sorts of mistakes. And 
Ben and I last time flagged a debate we were having with one of our colleagues, and I think our colleague is still very much of the view that these decisions should be made only by the Director General. The Director General is given an independent power, and that is true under the Health Act. So there is a power in the Health Act to stop, literally stop planes landing. But I would argue that just giving that, letting him make that decision by himself might be reflective of a value of legality in terms of he's got an independent decision to make, but it does raise very real process concerns that the closer we get to general lawmaking under that power, the more we want to build in around that, the processes that go with lawmaking in New Zealand. Can I add, Jeff, to I think on that on that border closing, complete border closing, I think part of the answer too lies in the timing. It looks like, although we're not sure, that that was in early days before an epidemic notice was um, issued and a state of uh, a national emergency declared. And that's significant because uh, the direct once those conditions are met, they're declared, the, the Director General gets those special powers, but if he was wanting to close the borders before then, he needed to have the foundation to tick off from Cabinet. So I think the timing um, explain or potentially might explain why the Director General seemed to be going to Cabinet and asking for permission to do something, even if later on we've raised questions marks about whether it, uh, once those, those, those conditions, the emergency is in play, whether he should be acting independently, quite you know, more like a constable, a little bit more separate and, 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 and a little bit more space from Cabinet. There's, there's also a question here as to whether, in fact, so the Director General is the Chief Executive of the Ministry of Health and also can put the hat of a medical officer of health on. And that closing, border closing power is one that a medical officer of health can issue. But there's a question here whether he was actually, in this case, asking to do this, or was in his Ministry of Health capacity offering advice to Cabinet on things that maybe they could do. And that's a normal functioning of the Cabinet process. It goes through the committees, um, Cabinet considers it, the bad ideas get kicked out or the ones that are ideologically inconsistent with the current government get kicked out and the ones they they like are accepted. Um, We see this um, because the Deputy Prime Minister chose to breach the normal confidentiality around these sort of cabinet deliberation processes. And on the one hand, transparency, good. On the other, again, as Jeff said, we won't know until we see the cabinet paper, but this may well be garden variety policy advice that is rejected all the time by cabinet being rejected by cabinet um, and just as a political point um, a senior minister wanting to show that no cabinet hadn't just been doing what the ministry of health said all the time it, one thing can i add up my enthusiasm for seeing the papers is now growing i think we were reasonably forgiving in the early days and the in the flurry that uh, you wouldn't necessarily see everything laid out on the table, you know, in, in, immediately. But you know, this government has rightly adopted a standard operating practice of making cabinet papers available, and uh, there's a timeline for that. And um, I think some of we want to sort of, I think, look back over some of these key decisions and get a sense of what's going on and what informed those decisions, and that feeds into that legitimacy point. So, like, like the attorney. Um, proactively disclosing the the paper we talked about before, I think some of those critical early days papers are are due. Right, and Eddie, we're just talking about 
or normal process? I think you just have a bit of a catch up for everybody on what's actually happening in Parliament, Eddie. Well, so so we're back. Um, no extension of the of the um, suspension of the sitting of of the House. House was back on Tuesday um, with a nice shiny seating chart, having every second seat, every second row, uh, someone sitting in it, kind of like spacing for a law exam. Um, uh, I heard someone observe on Twitter that the difference in the usual attendance of the house was more visible on the seating chart than actually in the house, because <laughs> usually not that many people are showing up. Um, but the back, uh, we have a limited uh, sort of order paper. Um, there's question time is back. It seems to be slightly non-illuminating, as question time often is. Um, the Epidemic Response Committee is continuing, um, but instead of the primary mechanism for querying the government response as, as it was, it looks like it's, it's morphing into somewhere where the different sectors of the economy and different professions who are affected can uh, have their say to Parliament in a, in a more timely fashion than might be the case otherwise. We've also just had, the debate will have just finished, Two, an, an entire two hours of debate on a three three readings and committee of the whole house on our first omnibus legislation on COVID. It, it's mostly technical stuff, looks to be taxation and, and financial reporting requirements and some changes to the Animal Welfare Act, okay. Um, but that had no select committee process, two hours of debate only. Um, and if the house is back and we're having this for parliamentary scrutiny, it would be great if we could have some more scrutiny when inevitably more legislation, changing some more substantive powers comes before the house. I think if we managed three days for uh, gun legislation in the wake of a massacre, we can manage a few days for some changes to health act and, and epidemic preparedness powers. Yeah, no, and I think that's a really interesting question as to why that hasn't come this week, whether it's just been more difficult or whether they're waiting for stage, for level two, to be more certain in terms of the policy and do it all at once. I'm not, I think that'd be pretty interesting to find out in the wash what's happened this week. But just there's been some, for me, what's going to be interesting about Parliament is when we switch from the immediate COVID stuff, the stuff that has to be done immediately, to the arguably COVID stuff because the government currently has a, an understanding that it's not going to use parliament for business as usual for a while, but inevitably politics is going to come back in and we've already seen some sharper politics over the last 10 days. And there's going to be some criticism from the opposition that inevitably anything the government does is going beyond just responding to COVID. It is more a centre-left government approach to COVID than a centre-right government approach to COVID re reconstruction might be. And the last thing, which I don't know what you want to comment on at the end, Eddie, is just this, what happens to all the business as usual that the government was previously doing? So we had, for example, um, regulation of the um, fake cigarette things that people began smoking. Vaping. Vaping, sorry, Eddie, you can see how cool I am. <laughs> Um, also, there's some other stuff going through, residential tenancies stuff, and just general government bills. There's a big education, from our perspective, there's a huge education bill going through. Do you ever see, some people have said, let's stop that, we're in a crisis, can't do that. Do you have a sense of that, Ian, how Parliament dealing with that? I mean, once the absolutely urgent stuff is out of the way, and we've got one today, and hopefully some 
uh, on the more substantive powers next week. Um, I'd like to see normal business coming back sooner rather than later. And, and with a recognition that we're in a different situation, that people are in a hard headspace um, and that more time might be required, maybe some select committee report dates could be pushed back. And in fact, I've seen that today, that some committees have pushed back report dates on, on various things. That seems appropriate to me, but um, the Epidemic Response Committee has shown that select committee business can be conducted reasonably efficiently via video conference or phone. Um, and the House is sitting, rules on proxies have been changed so that voting can continue in the proper proportion. So I don't see any reason um, why a lot of this really quite important legislation on some things shouldn't progress reasonably soon. And, and of course, if you're the opposition, you're going to do what opposition are almost certainly always going to do, which is to say, well, let's stop because we don't like your policies and also it's a national emergency or we don't, it's a national emergency and we don't like your policies. So that's going to be one of the debates that's obviously going to come up um, in the future. But we're pretty much out of time. I think it's been a great chat with our colleagues. I'm sure we'll be back next week. We're trying to organise some, some guest appearances as well for the next couple of weeks. But otherwise, I just want to thank my colleagues again for a really good chat and we'll see you all hopefully, or you'll see us next week. Cheers. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. Thank you to Te Korki School of Music alumni Kenyon Shanky and Stefan Patton for the use of their music. From Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, Haere rā.